0: Hello, all. Welcome. It is Monday Night, Generational Change. I'm Jen.
1: I'm Peter. And we have quite the book guest this evening, don't we? We do.
0: We do. And what's funny is I've heard of this book, but I hadn't read it. And um, it's one of those books that's a very inconvenient truth of our existence. We seem to be doing a lot of those lately, like when we had between Bright Green Lies and, you know...
1: Metalopoly, if you have to make the statement, hey, good to see you guys live streaming again, it's almost as if, let's see, are we being really shadow banned that hard that even our most loyal subscribers don't know? We haven't stopped. We haven't stopped. But now All of a sudden, now you happen to say... And I had noticed that he hadn't been on like the last few shows now that i We're thinking, here. Right?
0: You just don't get notifications wow. for us because we talk about things that nobody wants to talk about. Or so, we talk about things
1: that you're not supposed to talk about and get in a lot of trouble. Well, for I noticed that this. like
0: using certain words get limited monetization. Words like, you know, abortion. Yeah. Oof. so <laughs> crazy dangerous. things. So, um, so you, let's just get into it. Confessions of an Economic Hitman. But, and this is the third edition. And I obviously I had not read one or two. Um, but, but this has additional stuff. But you read third. I, I did read the third, but I didn't read one and two. I'm going to assume it's not like a two. sequel situation. No. no, I don't think it is. But always the, tri- the trilogy <clears> is
1: usually the best.
0: So guys, what this is about, this is the book, it's Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And it's by John Perkins. And what it's about is- our general imperialist global policy of taking over the world by going into other countries and offering them such help with things like their infrastructure with such good loans. We
1: have to bring them democracy. Don't right. you understand? Right.
0: And really, it, it, it isn't what it appears and by to be. Democracy,
1: we mean imperialism, but, you know, we yeah, have to be certain Yeah. It's
0: words. the... <laughs> Well, and all of these things get us demonetized anyway, because we're talking about things against the, you know, the power structure, and they don't like that. So, Don't
1: you want to just gossip about other crap? No,
0: I do not. So, guys, our guest, John Perkins, is a former chief economist. He has been advised the World Bank, the United Nations, Fortune 500 companies, governments around the world, um, and actually was an economic hitman. And um, is, I believe, to be a whistleblower like we like to have on this show. So I like that very much. So welcome on our show, John Perkins.
2: Welcome to Generational Change. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you guys. It sounds like you're you're, you're rather uh, um, radical.
0: You know what? I'm getting lefter and lefter as I get older. going to push
2: you over the edge. I know.
0: Well, and this is the thing is that I'm either I'm going to fall off the edge or it's a loop and I'm going to come back around and be on the other side. I don't know. But um, it's very nice to meet you. I just have to say you had me at Howard's Inn. um, And basically, as soon as I saw that that was somebody that you looked up to, that was very impressive to me. But let's start by just explaining what is an economic hitman? Um, like, what does that mean? And then I will talk about, like, how it evolved over the time, because that's how this is all laid out by, like, decades um, of it. So, yeah, just start out by talking about what is an economic hitman?
2: Well, as you pointed out, Jen, earlier, my real title is chief economist at a major consulting firm out of Boston. But my job was to identify, and this is what economic hitmen do, we identify countries with resources our corporations want, like oil. Today, it tends to be lithium and cobalt and the things that the green economy needs. Uh, But in my day, it was primarily oil. Um, And then we arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. The money, however, never actually goes to the country. The Hmm. country's in debt for the money. They have to put their oil or whatever the resource is up as collateral for the loan, but they don't actually get the money. The money goes directly to a big US corporation, a Halliburton or Brown and Root or Stone and Webster or Bechtel or General Electric to build big infrastructure projects in that country. Things like electric power systems, highways, ports, airports, industrial parks. And these things, of course, first of all, they make a lot of money for the company that builds them. Yeah. Second of all, um, they help a few wealthy families in those countries. People, the, the families that own the industries that you know that, that that benefit from this these big infrastructure projects, but the majority of the people actually suffer because money is diverted from healthcare, education, and other social services to pay off the interest on the loans, and in the end, the principal can't be repaid, and so we go back usually. So we go back in, often in the guise of the International Monetary Fund and say, hey, you know, since you can't pay your debts, um, give us you know, the collateral, your oil or whatever, r- real cheap. Sell that to our corporations. Privatize your water and sewage systems and other uh, public uh, businesses and sell them to our investors at, at, dirt, at, at dirt, dirt, price, dirt, dirt bottom prices. Uh, allow us to build a military base on your soil Vote with us on the next United Nations vote against Cuba or whatever, you know. And in that way, we've really created an empire, primarily up until fairly recently, uh, without using the military, which has been the traditional way of building empires. We've done it economically through economic hitmen. And I have to mention that my job's pretty easy because they, the presidents of these countries that I'm talking to or the ministers of finance know that right behind me stand what people we call the jackals. and These are pe- people, usually CIA assets, who either overthrow governments or assassinate their leaders. And, you know, people around the world know that we, we've we admitted to doing this with Allende in, in Chile and Mossadegh and Iran and Lumumba in the Congo and Ziem in Vietnam and more recently Zelaya in Honduras and on and on and on and on. So, you know... The president of a country says, hey, you know, I can take this big loan and make a lot of money for my friends and my family. We, we own the businesses or somebody with a gun might come looking for me.
0: Right. It's almost like the. it reminds me. It reminded me very much of like the schoolyard bully person who like you have to pay for protection or you can't. You know, it's like you're coming after their milk money. Basically, it's very predatory and it's so uh, nefarious. And, and it's very disappointing, I think, that I I found it very overwhelming because this really started after World War II is basically when we started seeing this imposed as a strategy. Is that is that right? Like when this started kind of coming into play?
2: Yes. Um, so what happened in the early 50s was that Iran uh, had a democratic, democratically elected president, uh, Mohammad Mossadegh who was, who nationalized foreign oil companies. We were very upset about that. <laughs> oh. and, and as were the British, our allies at the time. We didn't, it was, Eisenhower was president and John Foster Dulles and his brother Alan Dulles were head of the CIA and the State Department. And uh, they, they were not gonna put up with this. They wanted to get rid of Mossadegh, even though he was democratically elected, truly democratically elected. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in Iran, I can speak from experience. But Iran was right on the border with the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union now had nuclear weapons, and the Cold War had begun. So yes, after World War II, when you know the Soviet Union and we were allies during World War II, but things quickly changed. So rather than send in the military and 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 have that kind of a risk, uh, the Dulles brothers uh, and Eisenhower agreed that the best bet would be to send in a CIA agent it was the one they they chose was Teddy Roosevelt's grandson. Uh, And uh, he went in with literally with suitcases full of money and a few other guys, and basically paid people to demonstrate in the streets, paid policemen, paid others to look, make it look as though Mossadegh was very unpopular. And at the same time in the United States, there was huge amount of press releases that said Mossadegh was a communist, he was siding with the Soviets, which just wasn't true. In the end, um, Mossadegh was overthrown and essentially in a CIA coup and replaced by the Shah of Iran, who as we all know, became our, our supporter and friend. And also it created a tremendous backlash later when the Mullahs took over.
0: Now, and the countries just started falling after that. Like, I mean, you I don't know that in this book, there isn't a country mentioned, you know, like there's so many, there've been so many things over the years that have happened in so many countries What have you noticed how the system has changed? And I I just wanna, this was really interesting to me and just the whole four, the four pillars of the strategy that you talk about, about the economic hitman strategy, um, fear, debt, anxiety, and divide and conquer. And I feel like we've been seeing it fairly continuously from then in different capacities, but what have you noticed have been like some differences in how we approach it or that changes that maybe you've seen from when this first started to where we are now?
2: <laughs> it's a, you know, yeah, it's been a real uh, progression here because yeah. so after the, the most seductive thing in, in Iran, it became obvious that it was a lot cheaper and safer to use e- a few econ- economic hitmen, basically, which is what Kermit Roosevelt, uh, the CIA agent, the winner was, but it also became apparent that Roosevelt was a card carrying CIA agent had he been apprehended, it would have been very embarrassing. So the government decided to start using private consultants like me and consulting firms to do the same sort of thing. And over time, we get pretty good at doing this. And as I said, it was the job was pretty easy because the word to get around with presidents, hey, you know, you're either going to take these billions of dollars or somebody's going to come after you with, with guns. <laughs> what do you want, you know? And um, so... During the time that I was an economic hitman, uh, we were pretty generic. We we went into these countries and we wanted to create huge projects for American corporations, <clears throat> and we didn't really care whether Halliburton got the job or Bechtel or Brown and Root got the job, as long as we got our small share of it as consultants. But then things began to change as as the international. Uh, Corporate business opened up as globalization, particularly in the nineties, uh, and every major corporation got its equivalent of economic hitman. So whether it's Exxon or, or or Walmart or Nike or whatever the company is, if it's international, it's got its people that are going in and saying things like, "Hey, you know, we're, we we want to locate our next headquarters uh, overseas in in, in Asia." And who's going to give us the best deal? Is it, is it uh, Thailand or Indonesia or the Philippines? Who will, who will not make us pay taxes? Who will give us the lowest wage rates, et cetera, et cetera? And we've even used it in the United States. As we know, you know Amazon had this competition between U.S. cities to see if which one would give them the best deal. New York gave them the best deal, and then the people of New York rebelled. And so I think they ended up in Washington, I think. But so, so suddenly there became a much more massive amount of economic hitmen. It wasn't just this kind of the generic version trying to bring work home to whatever US corporation. It was like every corporation that worked internationally and they all began to work internationally uh, had their own version. And then around 2010, 2012, when Xi Jinping became head of, uh, of uh, China, uh, the Chinese economic hitman emerged.
0: That's what I wanted to talk. That's the, that was the big, like, that's what I want to segment to like what, because that's really what this third edition is about. Yes. Right. Like that's why you did this, (laughs) like put it out again. Um, talk about that, like that, what they've done differently, better, worse than what we've done in the past and how it's just, I mean, it doesn't sound like they're doing any better.
2: Well, yeah, their goal is the same as ours. It's yeah. what we call economic hitman strategy. You know, basically become the dominant power in the world. And uh, but they have a they have an amazing story to tell, which is far better than our story in many respects. Because they can they can point to the fact that they had economic growth of, of averaging around ten percent a year for thirty years. We've never done that. Nobody of ours done that except them. They brought more than 800 million people out of dire poverty, more than the rest of the world combined. And, uh, you know, they just had a, a, an incredible success story. And so they go to countries, their economic hitmen and also have learned from our, our successes and our failures. And they'll go into these countries and say, hey, listen, you know, like our, we, our system has proven uh, you know, say to the people, to uh, the president of Ecuador, or the president of Nigeria, or the president of whatever country, just take a look. Our system works. And oh, and incidentally, we're not going to do what the United States does and demand that you uh, sell your your utility companies to our corporations. We're not going to locate military bases on your soil. We, we don't do that. Uh, we're not going to practice what what we call neoliberal economic policies, which are which are these conditionalities that the United States imposes. We're not going to do any of that. We're not going to interfere with your government policies. You can do whatever you want. Uh, but just take these loans and use the collateral uh, you know the resources and today they basically control most of the world's lithium and and cobalt and the other minerals and that are necessary for the green economy. they've done an an amazing <laughs> amazingly efficient job at our economic hitmaning our economic hitman.
0: Yeah, that I gather. But you definitely mentioned in here that in terms of the structures and the infrastructure that they're building, that it's not good and that yeah. there's been a lot of problems with it. And I, I don't know enough about anything we've done to compare that to like abroad, but it sounds like shoddy. And that, that that so I mean what's the danger there? Because if they're they're doing a really good job getting the projects, but if you know what's happening with the construction once they get them.
2: Yeah. Well that's a really good point. So time after time after time they do build shoddy pro- projects. And I have to say that for the most part, American engineering was, was good. Uh, we did, we we did good things. Here's an example, Ecuador, where I was a Peace Corps volunteer. In the, in the late 60s, and then an economic hitman. And today, China's basically taken over. Ecuador, a South American country that had always been a real ally of the, of the United States, but um, they did not like the way we were treating them and building military bases on their soil. So they went with China. And in recent years, China built a huge hydroelectric plant in, in Ecuador. Gave them the loan, they used the collateral and so on built this plant that was supposed to supply almost half the country with electricity. But they built it in a very fragile part of the Amazon rainforest, next to an active volcano on an, on an earthquake fault line. The, the thing is, it's got eight huge generating units, and none, and they've never all operated together. The one time they tried to have them all operate together, they shorted out the whole electric system of, of Ecuador there's huge cracks in the in the house that, in the building that houses the uh, these generating units. So that's one example. Also in Ecuador, they're building a, a mammoth mine, a gold mine, a cobalt mine, copper mine, and it has a huge retaining dam to, to hold back the cyanide and mercury. It's very very toxic chemicals that are used in the mining process. It's a two hundred and sixty-three meter high dam. And dam, dam, engineer, dam engineers that uh, I know who've, who've worked for the United Nations and gone and looked at it say it's it's bound to fail. And when it does, it's going to dump tremendous amounts of toxic waste down an Ecuadorian river that eventually flows through Peru into the Amazon River, through all of Brazil, most of Brazil, and out into the Atlantic Ocean. So yeah, they built some very, very lousy pro- pro- projects. But when they're called to task on this, they say, well, that was the past. We've been on a learning curve and we're not doing that anymore.
0: (laughs) But meanwhile, there's all these countries that are stuck with whatever was put there. And when they're putting in those projects, are they utilizing local people and local, or, or are they not? They're bringing in their own people just like we would do. So it's not really benefiting in terms of employment.
2: Correct. Yeah. And that's another, you know, that's a, that's a very sore point in many of these countries that, that they, that they, for the most part, use uh, you know, bringing their own people. And again, they say that they're in the process of changing that. So we'll see yeah. you know, where it goes from here. So, but in the meantime, so I've described these projects in Ecuador. But in the meantime, Ecuador owes, owes uh, China tens of uh, billions of dollars in loans. And, and even though the project's not working, Ecuador still owes the money. And China will take the money through the collateralized resources in the country.
0: So it's just, they're going to just siphon it. It's just, they're like, it's sort of like leeches that leach onto other countries and suck all of its ju- juice out of it and then le- move on.
2: Yeah. So, you know, and it, it, I taught at an MBA program, the, the, considered the top one in, in China a few years back in Shanghai. And I realized that from the, at the beginning, that these Chinese students who have been hand picked to be the future leaders of China, you know, they were just, they wanted to pick my brain about well, what, I did, what I did that was right, that, that got, that won, that worked, you know, and what mistakes I made. It was, it was fascinating to see how the learning curve they were on, and they were, they were learning very, then they learned very, very quickly. Speaking with John Perkins, author
1: of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, you know, one point that I think a lot of uh, Americans, especially on the left, uh, have a miss on is, yes, there are a lot of problems in our country, especially when it comes to economic exploitations of other nations around the world, especially developing nations. Uh, Could you speak to uh, the practices of the Chinese government and what they do uh, to sort of, in, in some respects, do the same things that we do? I mean, we are competing with them on a national, on a global scale. But the one thing that the Chinese seem to have uh, way ahead of us is their ability to build infrastructure. And they are, it seems, decades ahead of us in, in Did, Were you part.
0: not just, like, he just talked about, like, that we're ha- they're having failing infrastructure problems.
1: Well, right. yes, but they still have certain advantages. Our infrastructure on a global scale is considered like a D.
0: You know, we, Oh, you mean they're what they have? Yes, there? Oh, okay. Yes, in their country. Okay. Yes. Okay.
2: okay. Yeah, they well, yeah, I mean, they 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 build cities overnight, (laughs) quite quite literally, you know. Uh, And uh, yeah, they're they're extremely efficient at doing this. And again, even some of their cities apparently are not doing standing up too well when there are earthquakes and such things. Um, But yeah, they've been they've been very, very efficient. And and I think it's it's fair to say it's it's completely a fact now that it's not when will the Chinese overtake us. The Chinese have overtaken us around the world. Our economy, our GDP, as we measure it, as we define it, uh, is still bigger than theirs. But they have taken over, basically, as the number one trading partner and investment partner all over the world. And this has all happened since 2012 when Xi Jinping uh, took power. This is an interesting map, for example. And this is, this is two, almost three years old now. Uh, let's see. You can right. see. Oh yeah, I, the United States is a number one trading trading partner with uh, Europe, so, so some countries in Europe and southern central and north uh, Latin America, South America. But but China is yeah. uh, is one hundred and twenty four countries versus our fifty six. Yeah, uh, 56. And yeah. That, that's changed. It's it's gotten worse. The the division has become greater. I don't have a map that shows what's happened in the last couple of years, but. I know it's gotten worse that way. Uh, So so China's really taken over.
1: How much would you blame our economic decisions over the last several decades? I mean, obviously, I look to uh, the policies in particular under Clinton. Um, Normal trade relations with China NAFTA, I think, did a significant amount of damage. And then obviously, you look at all the time we've spent in endless war in the Middle East, is there anything in particular that you would point to and say, "Yeah, this really was the uh, the touch point where things just kind of, you know, started to go downhill"?
2: Yeah, that's a great great question because we we have shot ourselves in the foot. We've really made it easy for the for China in many respects. You mentioned NAFTA, CAFTA, the North American North American Trade Agreement, and the Central American Trade Agreement, and uh, um, these. We're very deeply favored uh, US, big U.S. corporations at the expense of uh, Central Americans. And I've just got the newsletter coming out this next week about that, where I talk so much about how uh, the subsidies that we provide to huge agribusiness makes, makes it possible for these huge agribusiness to sell cotton and, and corn and other things cheaper throughout Central America uh, than the then the local farmers can produce it, even though it costs a lot more to produce it in the United States, but because our our big industries are subsidized, they can sell it cheaper, even though it costs them more to produce it. Doesn't make any sense, but it's what's happening. And there's a tremendous resentment. There's a tremendous resentment around the world at the fact that we have military bases in many more than 100 countries. Nobody wants to have an occupying military base on their soil. Regardless of what their leaders might say, the people hate it, and the leaders may make some money off of it, but that doesn't solve the problem. And as you mentioned, uh, when we did, after 9-11, we devoted so many resources to Iraq and Afghanistan that we basically neglected Africa and Latin America. The Chinese saw an opportunity they went in full scale there's a vacuum and now we're doing something similar by the a, a tremendous amount of effort that we're putting into Ukraine and uh, and the Chinese are, are st- they're staying away from Ukraine you know basically they're uh, and they're st- and they are they're just launching more and more programs in Latin America and South and and, and Africa you know recently uh, the vice president of the United States has visited, Uh, Africa, It seems as though the Biden administration is trying very hard to use diplomacy to to get back in the good graces of some of these countries, but the fact of the matter is, talking is not a substitute for, for spending money and investing money in these places.
0: Yeah, and I also think we can't undo the fact that we've been like the bully of the world for so long. You know, Like, no, I'm not surprised that people don't like having military bases in their countries. And I think that when you approach things that way and someone else like China approaches it not that way, that that's always gonna be bad. I mean, it's so common sense.
2: Yeah, you know, Um, all over the world, I think people love what the United States represents. our, you know, our, our Declaration of Independence, our Bill of Rights, and so on and so forth, and they love Americans for the most part, and they don't particularly like what the Chinese do the way they govern themselves. I think these countries don't necessarily want to have China's government, and they don't necessarily they don't particularly. And I don't mean to be bigoted here, but like you said, they don't like the fact that China brings in all of its own laborers, and they they don't mix with the local people at all. They're they're basically kept. Behind fences on these projects to do, to do the work in the projects, but but on the other hand, the China's policies and the way it treats these countries from a, a policy standpoint is better liked than the way we do it. Like you said, the bullying that we we uh, is associated with American imperialism is resented in so many so many places, and it's just a it's a terrible shame. You know, I. I consider myself to be a very patriotic American. My, I have relatives that fought in the American Revolution, and well, I think that you know, to, to be a good patriot these days, we've got to criticize what we do wrong, so that we can correct our mistakes. Yeah. Because when you come right down to it, in the end, what both of these countries are doing is destroying the planet as we know it, and that is really the big theme of my book. Is that by God, you know, we've got to end this economic hitman strategy because it's creating an economic system that's, that's polluting and consuming itself into extinction.
1: Speaking with John Perkins, author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, you know, for somebody who has truly been on the inside and you can see uh, these things happening before everybody else does, I'd like to think we have a pretty good eye for this stuff. But very often... Um, You know, you see what's happening in Ukraine, you see what these wars have been like, you see what the culture wars are like here in the United States. Um, I find it particularly perplexing how you get a significant portion, particularly of the highly educated liberal class that presents themselves as smarter than the average person, but in reality, they're just as naive as anybody else. They really have no thorough understanding about how foreign and domestic policy actually works. I think the average American doesn't fully understand how ill-informed they truly are and how the powers that be only allow the American citizenry to have just a, a very small dose of what really goes on, just enough to keep them interested and just enough to make them think that they understand what's going on. But in reality, they are as in the dark as anybody. What is your take as far as the American populace goes and why they're so easily manipulated into following the most mundane, useless stuff instead of really paying attention to the things that
2: matter? Well, I think part of it is that um, we want to believe our government. Uh, you know, we have pretty, we have in, for the most part, with a lot of exceptions, people in the United States lead pretty good lives. Um, and we want to believe this, what we get. And then the information we get is highly restricted. Uh, so, for example, the first of the trilogy of the economic hitman trilogy. The first uh, edition came out in 2004, but when I submitted the manuscript, it was rejected by 39 publishers. All the big houses rejected it. And what I later learned was that they were afraid of it, that they were were afraid they were gonna get sued by some of the companies I mentioned, that the US government was gonna come after them. They weren't gonna renew contracts with the US government and so on and so forth. And, and so uh, finally, the 40th publisher, you know, I get 39 rejection slips. How would you like that? You know? And finally, the, the 40th publisher published it and it almost immediately went to the New York Times bestseller list. stayed there for 72 weeks, I think it was. And it sold m- m- many millions of copies now in 38 languages. And then once it started selling, then there was a bidding war be- for, the, for the paperback rights. With my publisher, I didn't own the rights anymore. Unfortunately, it's you know, on the 40th, you don't negotiate. I didn't negotiate that contract, I was just glad to get it. So, my publisher made all the money off the paperback rights that were sold to Penguin ultimately for a lot of money. I didn't Well, you've sold millions of copies of this book, you must have made a lot of money off the book. I'm afraid not, you know, because I had a a bad deal, and yet what I really want to do is get the word out. The point I'm trying to make is that it's really difficult to publish and get highly distributed the information that is contrary to the way that our government wants us to think and the way I think most people truly want to think. We want to believe that we did the right thing in Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, we want to believe that our government is right. We wanna believe that, and I think that's true. You know, the Chinese people that I know wanna believe that China's doing the right thing. The Russians wanna believe Russia's doing the right thing. The Ukrainians wanna believe Ukraine's doing the right thing. It's, it's It's that nationalistic pride that we have. And despite the fact that we say our press is not controlled here, like it might be in Russia or China, the fact of the matter is the advertisers have a huge influence and, you know, the advertisers are a lot of the corporations that I talk about. They don't they don't really want these things to get out. <laughs> no, no,
0: no. It's definitely inconvenient truth about how things are done. And wh- what was it for you that was sort of like the end, like the last straw where you're like, yeah, this isn't this doesn't work anymore.
2: <laughs> well, so when I was in the business as an eco- a chief economist and uh, one of my clients, who was the head of state of Panama, Omar Torrijos, became a very good friend, and he basically pointed out to me. He said, "You know, you you provide these economic models that show that if if I if my country if any country accepts these huge loans and invests them in big infrastructure, the economy will grow, everybody will prosper, and the fact of the matter is, the economy the the models show that the GDP does grow, but but Omar Torrijos pointed out to me." That's not a real measure of prosperity. GDP measures how well the wealthy are doing, the big corporations. Right. It does not measure the average person. So he said, you know, these these models that you're showing uh, are, are, are 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 faulty. They're, they're they're skewed in favor of big uh, the wealthy and the corporations. I hadn't gotten that because in business school I'd always learned, and in within uh, the World Bank you learn to invest a lot of money in these in these huge infrastructure projects and the economy grows and everybody gets as well. So for most of the time I had the job, I thought I was doing the right thing. But after uh, I was in, I had that job for 10 years and after about the seventh year, I, I began to understand I was selling a lie and I was lying to myself and it's so easy. And so again, here Americans, were all lied to, we say, well, yeah, we're increasing GDP growth everywhere and, and so on and so forth uh, and so, um, but, you know, once I realized that I was selling a lie, I didn't want to admit it to myself. And there's another example. I was making a lot of money. I was yeah. flying first class around the world. I grew up some son of a New Hampshire teacher, you know, to suddenly be hobnobbing with, with presidents and flying first class and staying in the best. This of is without question one
1: of the more underrated aspects of congressional representatives that come from nothing and get thrust into this position of power that I still don't think the average American even has a clue as to how significant it really is. That includes a couple of representatives that we happen to know personally that were, you know, basically jettisoned over to Tokyo. And as I'm sure you were aware, did that nice little tour a couple of months ago, got to go on the bullet train, got to meet with heads of state in the Eastern Hemisphere, and stay at, as I'm sure you would agree, probably five-star hotels, five-star meals, these types of connections that in terms of dollar value can't even be equated in many respects. And that's on top of having 175000 a year salary, eight full-time staffers, every benefit under the sun you can imagine from healthcare to retirement to stock options, God knows what else that we are not even privy to. And so when the average person sees this and is trying to understand, you know, why is it that these individuals that we're hoping will fight on behalf of working people are not actually doing it? Not necessarily that they don't want to help working people. It's just that the temptation is so great that the average person simply cannot figure out how to just sort of turn it off. But somehow you were able to do that. And that seems to be a very rare feat. Most people can't say no. And I think that that's the big lesson here.
2: Well, you know, I, you're totally right. And now we're learning that even the Supreme Court uh, has the same sorts of temptations thrown at them. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, I think, part of why I was able to get this, to uh, several factors. One, as I said, I grew up son of a New Hampshire teacher, very, and, and you know, he, he, my dad was a Spanish teacher. So, I was, I, you know, I knew Latin America to a certain degree, and then I went in the Peace Corps in Latin America, and I saw firsthand poverty and extreme poverty, and 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 so I when Omar Torrijos started talking, I mean, that was the other thing. I, I met a remarkable man who was the head of a country and stood up against the system, and incidentally was undoubtedly assassinate, assassinated, assassinated, and died in a, you know. Private plane crash that all the evidence points toward an assassination. There's, there's never been a smoking gun found. There's no proof. <laughs> if you want to kill someone, they're crashing their their private plane is a damn good way to do it because smoking gun goes down with a plane. Mm-hmm. But um, so but I had I you know I had this rare opportunity to learn, but still, I didn't want to learn it. And then I have to tell you about I, I took some time off. And rented a little sailboat in the Virgin Islands in the Caribbean. And I was anchored off St. John Island and rode the boat ashore. Uh climbed up this hill to an old sugar plantation with a six-pack of beer <laughs> late in the afternoon. And it was really idyllic. You know, as I'm surrounded by Bougainville, there's this beautiful smells and there's birds singing and I'm looking out at the sun setting over the Caribbean. And I'm having a beer and I'm thinking. Isn't this a wonderful thing here? <laughs> how, how idyllic can it be? And Then it struck me that that plantation was built on the bones of thousands of slaves. Yep. Then I had to look at how the whole hemisphere is built on the bones of millions of slaves, not just from Africa, but from, from, from China, <laughs> from Ireland. Yeah. Uh, you know, our, indig- our indigenous people. And then I had to admit that I too was a slaver. I was enslaving people in debt. I was, you know, I, I was colonizing the world. I was part of that. And and that at that moment I made the decision uh, never to do it again. And I came back and, and quit and quit and pretty much devoted most of the rest of my life to trying to turn the system around in this economic hitman strategy and the terrible calamity that we're causing around the world.
0: So let's talk about what is it there are things that people can do. Right, like there there are solutions to solving this in terms of like, not that, you know, not boycotting one business or whatever isn't necessarily the answer, but there are different things that that we can do as people to help this, isn't there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, first of all, we've got to realize how much power we all have as individuals. This whole system is basically run by corporations. The US government supports it. and, and, And as you pointed out earlier, um, you know, it's, it's No, nobody. It's, nobody gets elected without a lot of corporate money, and so they're in the corporate pocket. So we know that corporations run our politics, okay? And but yet, corporations are totally dependent on us to consume their goods and services, to invest in them, to work for them, and so on. And so we have a lot of power there. And so one thing that everybody can do is recognize that 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 that. That power. And to I've talked to a lot of CEOs, uh, top executives at many corporations, and an awful lot of them will tell me, I want my company to be greener. I have children, I have grandchildren, but I know that if I lose uh, market share, my company loses market share, pretty length of time or the stock price decreases, the, the primary in- investors will fire me. And replace me with someone who only cares about stock prices or market share. So, I'm ask you, John Perkins. I say, when you're speaking at all these uh, forums and so forth, tell people, hey, you know, pick write me a letter. And 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 this 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 could be you could you could choose any company. You could choose Nike. You could choose Walmart. You could choose whoever you want. Write a letter, an email, a text, uh, uh, however you want to communicate, and say, hey. I love your products, but I'm not going to buy them anymore until you pay your workers in Indonesia a fair wage or clean up the pollution you've caused or whatever your your gripe is, and send that to them, but also send it to all your social networking circles. Ask them to send it to all their social networking circles. And these CEOs will tell me, you know, I don't read those, but somebody does. And I get a matrix once a month that tells me what our customers are are saying about us. And... uh, you know, we all are constantly, you know, getting requests for well, how well did we do a survey here, a survey there? But if we send out these these messages, and a CEO has a hundred thousand of these, he or she can go to their uh, their main investors and say, these are our customers. We've got to listen to them. We've got to do what they they want. And I think the most important thing here is to stop maximizing short-term profits. Companies need to make sh- short-term profits to survive, but they don't need to make these windfall profits. Look to the long term. How do we look to the long term of transforming this death economy, this economic system that's failing us into a life economy, one that one that can support us? And, and I know a lot of CEOs and people who, who want to see this happen, I was just... I take groups into Guatemala to work with indigenous people and, you know, it's on my website if people want to join me on one of these trips. But on the last one, just a couple of months ago, there was a, a top official from HP, formerly Hewlett-Packard. He's, he's in charge of all marketing. He's chief marketing officer. And he said he was very proud of the fact that HP had been designated as the greenest compa- company in, in the United States by Newsweek. And he said, you know, one of the reasons this works is because we've got investors that includes Warren Buffett and some big institutional investors who understand that the future is the long term, <laughs> by definition. And we've, they've got to stop, stop. They understand that we can no longer just emphasize short-term maximization of profits. We've got to look to the long term. And insurance companies are getting it. They know that climate change is one of the biggest risks they've got to face out there. So if people, anybody who who wants to do something, you know, start a consumer campaign, pick a corporation. Don't make them the bad guys. Say, I want to help you. I want to help you. And this is how I'm going to help you. And if you change your ways, I'll see to it that hundreds of thousands of people know this. That's one way. I, I, there's a lot of ways that I recommend in the book, but that's just one example. I think it's very
1: insightful. And everyone has this idea in their head that they're, oh yeah, we're going to take down this big, Corporation. No, you're not. The only way that it can happen is if you have one corporation that basically seizes the opportunity to expose the other corporation. So it's basically using capitalism against itself in a way. And I think that that is actually very intelligent. Um, Unfortunately, we have a very difficult time uh, sort of aligning. Uh, There's a lot of chefs in the kitchen and a lot of people want credit for the work that they do. Uh, We see it as transforming politics into service. That's why we do what we do. And we hope, against all hope, that your message, which is a great one, is one that gets out there to as many people as possible. And we do espouse that, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a believer that the only thing we can do, because no one is just going to outright accept socialism. But there are countries around the world that have, I don't want to say perfected a hybrid system of capitalism and socialism, but they've done a pretty good job. And they're very economically conscious as just as they are environmentally conscious and socially conscious. And so I think there's a lot of things that we can learn. And we can a
0: do a lot better. We
1: could. I mean, we could. And the thing about us Americans is that we're more than capable of doing it. We just have a, you know, a tendency to want to rub people's noses in shit because it makes us feel better. Uh, that's not our business. That's not what we do. Uh, we'll rub elbows with people who are on the, as radical socialist communist left as we will somebody who's on the farthest libertarian <laughs> right if you will because ultimately we have a lot more in common than we don't and that's why i think your book really espouses as much as anything mm-hmm. confessions
2: of an economic hitman do not I want to go sp- to
0: Guatemala well yeah. is the food really good
2: yeah Fantastic. I'm sure. It's fantastic. Yeah. We go to all these amazing sacred sites, Tikal, and hang out with the shamans and
0: oh see, I love that. That's definitely my thing. Sounds yeah. So I,
2: yeah. I, I wrote, before I wrote the first confessions, I wrote five books on economic uh, I, I, excuse me, on indigenous people and shamanism. I spent a lot of time in the Amazon and I still do, and I take groups every year to the Amazon and also to Guatemala. And, That's and, really cool.
0: And this is on your website. The yes, what John, you do. What, it, what is where is that? What is, is your, your website? website? John?
2: It's johnperkins.org. OK, well, that's
0: enough.
2: I'm organic, not not commercial. <laughs> of course. Your insight <laughs> and your knowledge is vastly important.
1: Uh, you remind me of a guest that we've had on that we think very highly of. His name is Wendell Potter. Oh, yeah. He is uh, he is the confessions of a health health insurance
2: hitman. Yeah, basically. Are was. you
0: familiar with Wendell at all?
2: No, I'm not. So
0: he that. was like a top. He was, top exec- he was the top, like the top exec at Cigna at Cigna for a long time. and realized that this is so predatory. This is so, so he's like the big whistleblower in the health insurance industry Uh-oh. and um, realized the error of the ways and is now obviously a big proponent of single payer healthcare and, you know, everybody and getting rid of insurance companies and so yeah, we, we very much appreciate whistleblowers. I think it's so important and um, you're very cool. I gotta tell you, and, and the I mean, you knew Howard Zinn, that's just really cool to me. I could almost like fangirl over that alone, like that whole, that's just like really cool. And you did the Peace Corps, which, that would have been my bag if I was at that generation. I think
1: we should have an economic hitman uh, panel at some point. Yeah, that'd Soul be fun.
2: I'm. I'm I'd love. Like I'd love to do that. Would you
0: come back? Like, would you come back and chat some more at some point? Like, because no, we we that. like to do all. We like kind of configure different. Yeah. We could do like a whole whistleblower thing. I don't know. We do different kinds of things and just have kind of flowing discussion and. Um, yeah, you're you're my kind of people. So thank you so much for coming on and talking about this.
2: My pleasure. You're welcome, and thank you for doing all that you guys do. It's 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 a real pleasure talking to you. I really really enjoyed this interview and. Um, to keep doing it.
0: Thank you, and so we will have you back for sure, guys.
2: The book is Confessions of
1: an Economic Hitman. If you guys do not have the third edition, it's yet another inconvenient story. Sorry, but I got to tell also, you. I, we, I, uh, if there's one thing that I am vain in, it is book covers, and this is a great one. So how bad could it possibly be? I've ever really the book covers that. not great. Hasn't
0: anybody ever taught you don't judge a book by its cover? Well, Hasn't in this case, I'm judging it that? for
1: the right reasons. <laughs> So make your book cover good and you might actually <laughs> open it and read and learn something new. John, thank you
2: so thank much you for coming so much. on. Thank you guys. You're welcome. Bye. Thank you. Have a great evening. We get some amazing- He's a great guy. Op- oh. I you
0: know, love anybody who like realizes, okay, what I'm doing is not great. She's happy right now, and, by the way. Yeah, no, she's been smiling a lot. Well, she's been like she big, is the great smiling. energy
1: of a good guy who's on, who's
0: on uh set. Anybody who's fighting the good fight. And he's had, this is somebody who's gotten death threats. Of course. He's had death threats. Like, I mean, you, the stuff that he knows and the, like, yeah, he got death threats when they got wind that he was writing this, the first, the first edition. He got death threats for this.
1: Well, look, I mean, he probably knows Michael Moore and there are people out there that do the things that are necessary to explode, exploit or expose, excuse me, not exploit, but expose the system for what it is. Yeah. And I think that that is. Because this is some
0: scary stuff you know, in here. And the way that this book reads, by the way, it's like by genre it's like, you know, historical. So it goes through each different era of economic hitmanism and each country. And he talks his own personal memoirs of what he participated in. But yeah, it makes sense. Like everything else, it went from being sort of a government-run operation to being privatized for-profit operation hitmen. So that's just basically what it is. So it went from being, like you said, generic to being every company now has their own economic hitmen. And it's just, we really cannot just screw the world enough, can we? Like, I, like we just really cannot screw the world enough.
1: No, we can't.
0: And what, we're, we're going to have to talk a little bit about this because I'm not entirely sure. I didn't really look at the story about this guy, the basketball player. And I'm not entirely sure what the deal is. He showed a gun. Like, I don't understand what the problem is.
1: So for those of you who may or may not know, um, and again, I'm, I'm going to try to find a clip. Because I'm going
0: to need to know facts and not just conjecture before I have any sort of thing to say about this. And I don't know who this person is other than I can see he's a basketball player for the Grizzlies.
1: So Jean Morant is a, I, I, I'll be honest. I mean, listen, he's he's a, he's a superstar. He is one of the more gifted talented basketball players. Uh, but can we agree that sh- that's
0: irrelevant to the
1: story, though? No, it's not. It's actually very relevant. Why? How good I he plays? Explain. Okay. Well, it, if, you, if you'll allow yes. me. Yes. So the the issue here, which has been an issue since I was young, and I've been wanting to tackle this particular story because basketball was the sport that I played. I've been an NBA fan since probably yeah, probably since like 1992. So over 30 years, I know I, I, I look like a kid, but I'm really that old. And so I've been watching basketball for a long time and I've witnessed how this game has evolved and it's evolved in very different ways because one thing about basketball is that there are significant ties into culture and obviously hip hop culture has played a significant role in, you know, the, the connection between those two worlds, between basketball and hip hop music that has always been a thing uh, probably since the mid nineties, but obviously it really came into existence on a national and even global scale. When Alan Iverson became a megastar in the NBA and his, what year was that? Probably like 1999. So, okay. All right. That's my point. This so is after uh, the Jordan so, era. Well, yes, absolutely. Okay. Right that's right what after I'm, the Jordan era ended. That's what I'm saying. So, You know, one could argue that the decisions that were made over the course of that time were extremely, you want to say, as far as from a business standpoint, they were very carefully choreographed in terms of how they were going to handle maintaining some semblance of high ratings post-Jordan, which, as many of you know, post-Jordan it was never the same. There was a slump. Significant slump. It never really recovered. Now, granted, LeBron. LeBron has helped and other players have helped, but it will never compare to that era. Now, of course, in the immediacy following the Jordan era, it is very easy to understand why things, you know, whether it was the NBA finals ratings, any of that stuff, it was noticeable how much of a slump was actually there. And so, Whether the NBA consciously or unconsciously decided that they were going to formulate this type of marriage, if you will, with hip hop culture and allowing Allen Iverson to basically be the face of the NBA, whether that was the way he talked, the way he dressed, the way he presented himself with his clothing, with his tattoos.
0: Yes, because like when I think back to like the days of, you know, Larry Bird or Michael Jordan. It was pretty clean cut. Looking. It was never like that. It was very clean cut. I remember the first person I remember t- noticing that I thought was kind of really out there and was like a Spreewell. and wasn't he the one who like strangled his coach or something, right? And I remember thinking that even when Scottie Pippen, I think even got busted for having like some sort of firearm in the back of his that truck, is and correct, that was
1: because when you crazy. were at when when you were at right? Northwestern. This was back in 94, 95. Right, I was Scotty got- uh, He
0: got busted He got
1: busted because he had an unregistered firearm in his car. Now, of course- But this was huge. Now, Scotty Pippen is, you know, he's compared to just about anybody else. He's about
0: as straight-laced as it gets. But
1: even then, that was a huge deal. Today-
0: Right, that's my point, is that this isn't like that. I don't understand what- All right, so tell me what happened with this guy.
1: I'm trying to bring the conversation full circle. So over the course of Iverson's- ascendancy to the top, particularly the 2001 season when he won the league MVP. There was such a cultural shift in people copying him and people getting the cornrows and getting the tattoos and starting to wear extremely baggy clothing on the sideline, which made them look like they were either gang affiliated or hip hop affiliated. See,
0: I don't agree with these things. I'm
1: only telling you the perception that was being put out there: the do rag, the long clothes, the, the 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 super sagging pants to the to their, you know to their jock, if you will. Well,
0: they, a lot of people still do that, but but and I don't particularly care for that look. But I would say that also, just because somebody is does something. And it gives a sign to other people that, oh, my God, we're, this is now acceptable. We can now be more, do what we want and be more ourselves. I don't know that that's the same as copying said person. The
1: problem, of course, is that when you come from the streets, like a lot of guys ultimately come from, and now you're flipping the story on its head, which is these guys are not from the streets anymore, even though they want to project that to the people that they came from, making them think that they're still there. These guys are multimillionaires many times over. They may not feel comfortable wearing a suit and tie, but when you are in the public spotlight, especially as a professional athlete, you are a role model, whether you like it or not. And I'm not the moral authority police here trying to tell people how they should and shouldn't conduct themselves. But there is an argument to be made in terms of when you are at that level and how you do conduct yourself in public. And as was the case with Iverson and many others that followed, they didn't care. They conducted themselves in such a gratuitously poor way that it led to the malice at the palace or was that what it is now but this also this
0: is one of the reasons why i ended up loving the spurs as much as i did because they were the most clean cut straight
1: laced team that at people that didn't like because they didn't have any of
0: those types of That's personalities so interesting. I, and I, yet
1: they won four titles in eight years
0: now, so, in, in all fairness to me, I did live in San Antonio at the time. Sure. It wasn't like I just jumped on a band. I, I was living there. Um, It was it was really nice. But that was a very clean, but Pop wouldn't tolerate
1: that. No, he tolerated winning. And so for a lot of other franchises, yeah. and again, this all stems, in my opinion, from Tim Duncan, who 1,000%, and David Robinson, Oh yeah. who, you know, again, David Robinson and Greg Popovich were in the Naval Academy. And so there was a level of respect that was there that was commanded. Hence and don't the admirable. forget. And do not Hence forget. The and do not forget that San Antonio is a very military based city. And so there was this level of professionalism and respect that was commanded of the San Antonio Spurs. Still is. Whereas other teams did not have that. And you know what? It was reflective in whether they won or not. And the Spurs won. And Tim Duncan is one of the greatest forwards that's ever played the game. He's extremely that's his, humble. He is. And that's his record. Whereas for a lot of
0: other guys, they don't have that. I was just doing a contrast, like, between the type of people you're talking about. I compare to people like David Robinson. So what does Allen Iverson have?
1: He has an MVP trophy. He had one amazing run that year that led to an NBA Finals berth. And since then, he had been in the playoffs a handful of times and never made it past the second round.
0: All right. So let's bring it to this guy today.
1: So where we come full circle today, and there have been many problems as it has been in the NBA, John Morant, in a lot of ways, embodies Allen Iverson. Now, he may not talk like him. He may not necessarily get in trouble with the law the way that Iverson used to. But what you do have is a budding superstar who is an amazing talent if you've ever seen him play. But for some reason.
0: What position is he? In?
1: He's, a, he's a, technically a point guard, oh. you would call him. And so. It is what you call thug culture. And the reason I say that is because. There are people right now who are trying to compare the behavior of Jean Morant flashing his gun to white gun culture. Let me explain something for people who do not understand the difference between urban and rural gun culture. People who flash guns in rural gun culture are not doing it because they're trying to scare people. They're trying. They're doing it because they believe in the Second Amendment and they are warning you not to come onto their property to basically tell you that I am armed. And yes, I would be dangerous for you if you tried to bring harm to my family.
0: I don't know why. I I don't I'm not understanding this whole comparison. I think that flashing guns is flashing guns. The difference, of
1: course, is that when you marry the flashing of guns with hip hop culture, which constantly talks about violence rape. All okay, these but see, types These of are things. all sounding
0: like additional facts. So I want to know what exactly happened with this. Guy. Like, I feel like we're so, what happened with this? What happened?
1: I'm going to put on a, I'm going to pull up a clip of Stu, of Rich Eisen, who I think will be able to explain this pretty well. Like the facts up, of this. Of exactly what went down and why this is so bad. Because the reason this is so bad for Jean Morant and now bringing this conversation full circle. This is not the first time this happened. This happened earlier this season where he was at a strip club packing a gun and ultimately got in trouble for that and got suspended for a significant period of time during the season and ultimately broke the locker room with the Memphis Grizzlies. They ended up getting knocked out in the first round of the playoffs. And as soon as their season is over, he gets he gets caught up with this shit all over again. This guy has a contract. That is basically worth a quarter of a billion dollars, and he's going to piss it all away. So let Rich Eisen explain
3: exactly why. There are foreign countries telling people, be careful going to the United States. You might die due to gun violence. That's happening right now. We all know what's happening in our world. We all know. And you know how I feel about this subject matter. I have spoken about it constantly. For John Morant to be suspended for what he was suspended for, and then to show up on an Instagram live video on the account of his friend who had been banned from his home games because of his friend's actions, stepping on the court, to confront Pacers players he had to be removed from the arena was banned from returning to the arena as a patron and then the Pacers reporting to the NBA and its security department that red lasers were were being flashed on its bus on the on their bus and they were wondering if this could have been something to do with this scenario, this situation for him to show up on that guy's it for him to be hanging out with the guy after everything that hung that, that happened. And then to appear on his Instagram live feed. And the, if you see the video, his friend's phone just flashes and you see Morant, you could, you could freeze frame it. You see Morant sitting In the passenger seat, which is obviously how I'll refer to this with firearms involved. He's sitting in the passenger seat and a huge ass handgun. I saw that. I'm like, get out of here. And then I said, the league has got to think that as well. Get out. Get out. We gave you eight games and it was, you know, and we let you go down to the state of Florida and figure it out however you talked about it, however you went through your process mentally and were allowed to return. I I don't know. Honestly, he clearly does not get it. And what he can get is nine figures of money and fame and fortune and showing everyone how it's done. He has that opportunity. And what he's doing right now is he is flushing it down the toilet. I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's a damn shame. And the Grizzlies suspended him. I think the league's going to come in on top of it. And they should. They should. Because for him to say, as Jeff in Detroit said, to Jalen Rose, wasn't my gun. I need to make better decisions off the court. And this is what he's doing. This is the story on Mother's Day. So I think the league is going to act and it's going to act very strongly. And then we'll see what happens. It's like he comes back and then, and then what? Cause the, then what is what will lead his way to the path to fame and fortune? Well, he was already infamous now and the hall of fame. He's blown it all. Someone's got someone who he respects and loves has got to sit him down and say, you are blowing this pal. And for what? For what? Like you can't tell your friend, we've got to separate right now. You know, we we, got to chill out.
2: Catch the rich eyes and show every single day on the
0: I
3: don't really have that much
0: of the same position on this. But I am surprised that the NBA takes that stuff much more seriously than the NFL does. That's for sure. The NFL would just throw, you know, they'd maybe like tap him on the wrist and then give him a raise. There's a lot
1: of people who do not want to see young black men, especially from urban plighted culture, succeed. There is a resentment that goes on within their culture and their community. It happens with rappers. They get killed. It happens with athletes, they get killed. So when somebody in the media is going to defend John Morant again for what he did and say, well, how come you don't have the same reaction when you know Thomas Massey is flashing uh, you know, an AR-15?
0: Actually, I do have that reaction. Actually, I do. I think it's absurd. I think that anybody who sure. feels the need to take photos and show their weapons, especially people that are in elected positions, that that's just absurd. Oh
1: no, I agree. It's absurd. You know, but there is a. But there's di- But there is a different context. There is different context. You got I, 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 I,
0: I think that that is where you're making it be like where it gets sort of racist. Um, I don't. I, think it's,
1: I don't think it's racist when, when we're talking about a, a certain type of. He posted behavior. it on
0: Instagram. Is that what he? Because I still don't understand what exactly happened. Nobody's told me. He,
1: he yes, there was an Instagram. What, what? What do you want to see? What he did?
0: No, I just didn't understand if it was like a, a single post that showed him with a gun. Like, I don't know what it yeah, was. Yeah, are still not listening. I told you, he
1: already had done an incident like this earlier in the season. Yes, that I got. He and was so, suspended for
0: it. I understand. And so now you're saying he did it again. Yeah, but what did, it yeah. is, is it's he's showing a gun on Instagram. Yeah, he's
1: on Instagram. They're, you know, they're, they're looking like they're, Again, I'm, I'm telling you, I there is a difference when it comes to this sort of cultural mindset of, let me flash my piece and show you what a tough guy I am, when you're basically, there's a difference between playing defense and playing offense when it comes to gun culture, as far as I'm concerned. So if your attitude-
0: All right, I the, the, this is where I say the opinions of him are his, because I don't know where well, this is going. I'm I just don't know.
1: saying that there's a difference in gun culture when you're playing offense versus playing defense, like, hey, look. I've got a gun.
0: But how is that different than Lauren Bobert sending out a holiday card Lauren, of her and her kids Lauren holding Boebert guns? Is a,
1: Lauren Boebert is a lunatic, and I'm not using her as the barometer to say, oh, but she's somebody who you should be looking anybody up Anybody
0: who is having... Anybody... Who is posing with their weapons and showing it as a sign of "look at what I've got" is the same to me. So if you're going to sit there and say it's different because of rap culture, no. Anybody who's flashing their piece like they think that it's all that but is I'm the still, same. But I'm
1: still explaining what where I stand. And listen, people call me racist. I don't give a fuck.
0: No, no, no. I'm I'm just, I'm just saying to me, if you feel the need to show off your gun, it's the same difference. I don't I don't think it's different. I think it's the same. That's what I'm saying.
1: I don't, you know, to me, if you're going to, if you're going to make a video and you're going to make it sick, you know, I remember Delonte West. I remember certain players where it's there, there, to me, there's a difference. It's not that it's defensible to what both sides are doing. Gun culture is sick. Obsession with guns is sick.
0: Well, I just, to me, it's the same difference. It's just, you feel the need to show your weapon. You're showing your weapon. That's true.
1: But I do believe that there is a difference in terms of the message that's being conveyed when you flash it in a certain context. I do think there is a difference. Well,
0: no, see, well, you're, so you're confusing the difference between a different message versus a different perception. Now, the message is the same. How people view it based on their biases is what's different. But I don't see, you see- What's the different message?
1: Well, here's a good example. Most people that are flashing guns in the hip hop culture are not people that I would normally associate with going to gun classes, going to the shooting range. But that's irrelevant. Why does that matter? I don't know. Because I think it's the message that's being sent. I think that does matter. To whom? To Whoever is looking up to them, John Morant is a megastar in the okay, NBA. Okay, so now you're
0: talking about them as a role model and why that matters. And then I look at people that are elected people that are sending out Christmas cards showing their assault weapons. Sure. As equally as ridiculous. And I don't see it as, like, I, I don't see the, the difference in what you're saying. I don't understand it other right. than you're saying it's just racial. No, that's not, it's not what I'm saying but, at all. But what is it then? I'm What's saying the it's,
1: there's, there's a, there is a cultural difference when it comes specifically to whether or not you are associating with hip hop culture.
0: And what that difference is, is basically the white world's perception of it. What you're talking about is this sort of what the bias is against it, but based on people's perception, not based on what is. So when you say the message is different, no, the message is the same people's biases about people create a different perception. But it isn't different. It's the same. That's what I'm saying to you. You're proving what I'm saying by saying like you see it differently. Yes. But I, what I'm saying is what is the actual difference other than perception?
1: I, I as, as I am stating, I do believe that the big difference with hip hop culture and rural gun culture is that hip hop culture talks about killing people, talks about defending your honor with a gun talks about, you know, doing, you know, they disrespected me. So I gotta, I gotta, I gotta handle this situation, but they're not talking about handling the situation mano a mano with two fists. They're talking about, I gotta go to this guy's neighborhood and I gotta shoot him up. Like that's a real thing. And that happens all over this country. And of course it doesn't get talked about in the media because if that was talked about, it would be talked about through a racial lens, which is not the answer. The perception is always that well, it's a, this is a black versus white thing. It becomes a black versus white thing because of who's flashing the guns and in what context they're doing it in. This would be no different if Eminem, who was at one time the biggest rapper in the United States, would be doing the same thing, flashing a gun, saying, "Hey, oh come mess with me! Right. Look what I'm doing." Yeah, that's not the answer. No, but- I don't see professional baseball players doing this. I don't see professional hockey players doing this. I don't see professional golfers doing this. Well, and quite frankly, I don't really see but why are you yelling at me? I don't really see professional football players doing this. But there is something about the association. Then
0: maybe it's a basketball thing. It is not a, a well, I
1: thing. do think it is a well, no, I think it's a combination of the I two think things.
0: okay. I do think Can it's a combination. Can we just move on with two. this? This is I'm, I'm like Sorry, so over this already. We just move on. I don't agree. I think that uh, flashing your gun is flashing your gun. I think it's irresponsible. I think it's stupid. And I think that when you have a private employment, it's their prerogative to not have you representing them when you do things that they find irresponsible. I don't disagree. That's what I think. That's the only thing that matters to me in this context is, okay, so he's being suspended because he did something that they find inappropriate. That's fine. They're allowed to do that. It's private business, private contract. They can do whatever they want. And it does sound like he's obviously on a mission to self-implode. Well, clearly
1: something's going on there. And I and hope he gets whatever swag. type of intervention that he can.
0: He can't even take this guy seriously. He's like, this guy reminds me of like Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can. That's this guy. He's like just skating through life as somebody else. It's so strange to me. So
1: we have another story we want to cover before we go. Obviously, for uh, those of you who are aware
0: uh, Travers. Uh, Metallopoly. I understand it very well, have friends in that and do understand that. So no, I am not obtuse, but thanks for checking.
1: Yeah. And Travers, let's not come up with any, you know, poor ideas. Cause that, that, you know, there's no defense of it. I'm not defending that cult, that gun culture in any capacity, nor should anybody. It's not something to show off.
0: Well, I just don't even like the term gun culture because I'm not entirely sure what that means. People who are obsessed with guns. Okay. But I, I, and then I would just say people who are obsessed with guns. But the thing is that it's the whole concept of having your gun is the same. It's the same. It's the same.
1: So George Santos somehow is still in the (laughs) United States Congress, however temporary it may be. I'm
0: telling you, it's like, it's like catch me if you can with this guy.
1: So Lee Zeldin, of all people, has said indicted Representative George, George Santos should resign. Serial lying and now indicted Long Island rep George Santos is an embarrassment who should resign. Ex-Congressman and Republican nominee for New York Governor Lee Zeldin said, when you've got Lee Zeldin coming out against you saying get the hell out of here, that means like get the hell out of here because that's what it is. Right, now
0: it's past just the Mitt Romney decorum issue. Now we're into like even other shady people don't like him. Voters in the third district that take parts of Nassau
1: County and Eastern Queens are embarrassed by the first-term congressman who now faces criminal fraud charges on top of his pile of lies, Zeldin told people uh, at the New York Post. People who voted for him are more upset than the people who didn't vote for him. If I were him, I would have resigned. Zeldin said first-term Republican House members are... Sure, to face tough re-election campaigns in swing districts, don't need or want the Santos distraction.
0: I actually like, is, isn't that Melanie's district? Yes. So
1: interesting. And of course, what a surprise, but all of the Democratic establishment wannabes are coming out of the woodwork, already launching their primary campaign, trying to get as much cash as they possibly can to go up against Santos. She's not going to want to get that, right? Uh, probably not, but... Hey, you know, it's it's Long Island, baby. Democrats are already trying to link their GOP opponents to Santos, who was accused of embezzling 50,000 in campaign money to buy designer clothing and pay personal expenses. Yeah, that's just one of many things that he's done. Federal prosecutors also allege Santos, 34, cheated his way to covid unemployment benefits.
0: This and guy lied man. to
1: Congress on financial disclosure forms in which he claimed to be a millionaire, according to a 13 count document. He
0: is like I raisin, mean, is it, that is not I don't know. I, there's something almost like fascinating about this to me with if, this guy. If this picture does not say it, I don't know what does. I I find the whole thing that fa- is he like it's almost like he's not even real. Like I'm telling you, he's like a, a, he's, he's like G- I think he's, he's Leonardo G- DiCaprio G- no, in a suit. I don't
1: no, know. he says he's Jew-ish. Ish. <laughs> that was one but of the, the best. the fact that
0: it just keeps going with him and it's just like, it's ridiculous. It's so funny. I almost feel, it. I almost think it's like we're being pumped. It, it's like, it almost doesn't seem real with this guy. He couldn't even make it through one turn. It's just, it's but, but here's the thing is that they'll just, if they didn't force him out, the reality is he'd probably keep getting reelected because people, most people don't participate and vote. And most people just vote for who they know, good or bad. Oof. So it's like they, if they don't get rid of him, he can just sit there.
1: <laughs> Zeldon and Santos shared a treasure, Nancy Marks. Wow. Whoa. So if he's saying get out and they shared the same treasure, holy crap, he probably knows a lot more than most people know.
0: <laughs> that is and guys, just amazing. for and just for for argument's sake. That could have been Melanie and It could have actually been something. Yeah. You know what I mean? That could have been an additional fighter that was actually a legitimate fighter. And this guy is sitting in there being like a circus.
1: Yeah, it really, really stinks. Uh, he, yeah, maybe he is he a He is, troll. he's the best troll
0: ever. Well, that's what I'm the saying. The problem is, it's is he's
1: probably like, gonna go to prison. Like he's got so much white collar crime that is under his fingernails. I'm telling you, I don't point, think he's
0: real. I think he just disappears. I think it's all an illusion. It's not real. Whatever he is. He's, I'm just saying, it's just it's weirder than weird with him by the minute. I just don't even yeah, know. And it's,
1: every, and it's <gasps> everything with him. It's <laughs> this, so
0: bizarre. He's a...
1: <laughs> it's the ultimate troll. Well, this gets back to kind of the arguments. Um, you know, when we talk about the perception of what corruption actually means when you're on the hill he's like wag the dog for so many people they just accept it as is but for some reason he is not going to survive this
0: well it isn't just because of corruption it's the complete fraud of it again this is my constant pigs get fat hogs get slaughtered he just went too far like he had it he had it and then he just went too far you know you you, you just can't go well, that who's far to say
1: he didn't have it but all of this stuff that's coming out is pre-election.
0: It all might have been pre-election, but you don't necessarily draw that much attention and, and scrutiny when you're not so blatant about other things. So it's a, it's like a domino effect. Once people start digging, they're going to dig. So it's just a matter of time. And when somebody is a fraud and a liar, you better believe there's a lot of fraud and lies in their past. So yes, he had it to a certain point and he obviously just went too far. He, if you stayed within certain, look, Joe Biden lied and was a complete fraudulent resume and cheated and stole essays and all that stuff. Somehow everybody, you know, forgets about that complete fraud. So yeah, there are certain points where you can do it up and then you cross over. And and you start offending ethnic groups. And I think that that, when you start doing that, I just think too many red flags and, and the grift is up. But you know what? If you're going to go after one, go after them all as far as I'm concerned. Well, Joe Biden lied about his whole thing. He lied about his uh, transcripts. He lied about like a whole bunch now, of stuff. I mean, listen,
1: we'll, we will eventually get into the Biden story because evidently there's like- There's a Biden there, story. There is a really deep connection regarding family corruption in terms of pay to play. It involves- like ten members of his family that have been in, that have been in on this for years what? and years. Is and this years. something
0: new that came yeah. out? What was this from?
1: It's not even going to. get, It's not getting the type of attention that it's going to necessarily get. There's so journalists
0: that uncovered this. Like, well, there, yeah, it? yeah. That's okay. basically what's
1: happening. But look, corporate media goes to great lengths to protect the current president, and that's just the Democratic presidency in general. Again, the two parties control different segments of the of the system the Democratic Party controls the corporate media system overall. And so as a result, you're not really going to get too much of what should be an informed populace when it comes to our current president. All the fingers get pointed at Trump for being this slime bucket that he is. right? But of course, there's really no difference in many ways. In fact, it's worse when it isn't the obvious person who's doing what they're doing. George Santos, on the other hand, just decided to let the cat right out of the bag, as Kramer would say. And He's when you just make it guys, so, and he's just such, right. a, and he's such a douchebag. It's like <laughs>
0: he's just so. I'm telling you Like that
1: video of Romney it can't be real that's at the, the State of the Union. He's like, you don't belong here. Like, and 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 meanwhile, <gasps> Santos is like, way to be, way to be have decorum, way to be professional. Oh my and God, it's like I can't. he's
0: he's I, I don't know. Like, I, he really. It's almost His, like
1: he could have showed up there. He's and like Roswaldo. Well, imagine if he showed up and just like pretended no, like he just was pretending like he wasn't actually You know right what?
0: There. How about when they don't, here's what I think will happen. Here's the best. Here's what I think will happen. They'll get rid of him and he'll still keep showing up like George did. Yes! He-
1: <laughs> You're serious? That was a joke. You think I
0: was sick? Yes, are
1: serious,
0: aren't He's you? He's going to still keep showing up. Yeah, He'll probably build like a nap thing under his desk. He'll just still be there. Is
1: that? you and
0: George have to go through like the ducts that, that, to get into the office because they locked him out of the office. Is that
1: Costanza? <laughs> what the hell is he doing here?
0: And they locked him out of the office. I can't. But no, this guy to me is just, it's so entertaining. I, I Honestly, it's really entertaining.
1: Yeah, and it's not going to end well because if there's one thing that a narcissist like this guy is going to want, he's going to want his show trial.
2: Or he is, is gonna, he just
0: acting, and the whole thing is just ridiculous. Well, brick. he is a,
1: Well, apparently, he is a. Um, he's. A, he was a drag queen so that's was, my
0: point like my yeah. thing is this is one of those things like where Andy Kaufman did that whole thing where he played that other guy yeah and it was that whole thing well it's like, me and I am and Andy Kaufman no not that crew. no he played I forget who his alter ego was oh it, there uh, was that whole well, thing
1: well with uh with Jerry the King Waller well he was like pretending to be a wrestler
0: yeah and, it was that whole thing and yeah. I almost feel like this guy it reminds me of that like Man he is just I, it's not real. This can't be, it's just so absurd.
1: Well, like I said, the one thing that he is looking forward to more than anything else, he wants that show trial. He wants to be put in front of the cameras 24 seven. He wants he to be sitting it? in that courtroom. He wants everyone. He wants everyone looking at him. Oh, you better believe it. Oh, you know, that's he wants that. That's why he turned himself in and immediately said, it's a witch hunt. It's totally witch hunt. Right. Isn't that what it is? Yeah, it's it's definitely a witch hunt because you're the witch and you've been hunted.
0: (laughs) But if they get rid of him. Who are they going to make fun of? I don't know. He's, well, there's other people we we would make fun of. I mean, you know, we still have Marjorie Taylor Greene.
1: We still have our congresswoman. (laughs) Patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You can become a supporter of our Small But Mighty channel. You know we appreciate any and all support. The Lulu sticker is the intro gift, but for those who decide to become a little bit more generous and a $10 patron, you'll get the person who we do think is going to be the president, Manchin Parliamentarian. Speaking of president, it looks like Ron DeSantis is about ready to
0: announce, not a surprise. So he obviously found a way around whatever it is he had to find a way around, because there were several
1: laws. Yes, and his numbers apparently are very strong in Iowa already, so not a surprise. Uh, and if you are feeling extremely generous and really want to support our channel at $25 a month, you get the Gen Change jersey. Try Blend, Silky Smooth. You know you'll love it. It's really awesome. Please consider becoming a supporter of our show. But if for whatever reason, you do not want to get your information on the grid, and a lot of people do not, you can go to Cash App at dollar sign Gen Change, and there you can become a supporter. I actually, to you, I actually agree with you, Metalopoly.
0: I actually agree with you. You know, it's only a two year term. They'll vote him. It's like they voted for him. They were duped. It's that, you know, nobody did their research because that's the truth. And so, yeah, it is up to them to vote him out. I agree with you. I I agree with you. He is a fraud. And the people that voted for him have now seen that and they will most likely will vote him out if there's anybody decent running against him.
1: So on Wednesday, we do have... A what do we have? Different ge- we have a couple of guests that will be we coming. We do? To. Yeah, we're going back to back on Wednesday. What are we doing on Wednesday? So Wednesday, we will be speaking with a local gentleman, Jason Haber. Not my name, but pretty close. If Who our email will line up, he is based in Boca Raton, uh, And he is somebody who wrote a book. Um, Forgive me, I'm not seeing that information in front of me this second. What did you say his name was? Jason
0: Haber. Oh, I don't see it. Yes. Okay.
1: So Jason uh, presented us with some information. I just need to pull it up. On... So he wrote uh, From Main Street to Wall Street. Today's social op- entrepreneurs are rebooting capitalism, challenging the charity industrial complex, which is a big one.
0: Yeah, that's important.
1: And disrupting business models. Haber env- envelops the reader in the foundation of social entrepreneurship from Ben Franklin to what he calls the Great Convergence, the turn of the millennium, shift, zeitgeist shift. Zeitgeist shift, excuse me. Zeitgeist. Which All right, smartass, which provides the fuel for social entrepreneur's surge to the forefront of business. So that will definitely be interesting.
3: And
1: but was there was a book here? that you we were supposed to read? No, no. We, I mean, we're just going to talk about it.
0: Okay, because um, normally I prepare video. when I know if somebody's coming. And well,
1: I... he, Jason's local and it's... Uh,
0: okay, so we're going to just chat about his stuff. Okay. And yes. who else is coming on Wednesday?
1: And on Wednesday, we will also be speaking with... Christian Sorensen.
0: Who's that? He
1: is, uh, I think he was, I know he was in the military. Well, it looks something they do with military budget. Yes. Uh, Cost of war. Uh, Wanted to come and talk about tax day. And the reason, uh, let me see. No, specifically, there was a, particular reason why we were going to have him on. But he is going to talk about the absolute insanity that is our military spending, which as John Perkins was pointing out earlier this evening, uh, has a lot to do with, you know, the rough shot that we have run all over the world, because that's basically what the money is for. It's not to make sure that the soldiers are well taken care of, especially (laughs) when they come home. No. Well, no,
0: actually, we don't take care of them either there or after. Mm -hmm. It's actually both. Frankly, a lot of the money goes to people who don't even serve. You know, I've been on aircraft carrier. Did you know I've been on aircraft carrier? Did you know I had a tour of an aircraft carrier and got to go into like where the the barracks are, where they sleep, all the stuff. Did you know that? Did you know I got to see the plane actually land on the, the wire thing, come up and hook on it? It was really cool. Didn't know you were a congresswoman already. No, interested. but I have been on aircraft carrier. And I will tell you, I've seen how our service people um, are accommodated. And as somebody who has also been inside of jails, I can tell you, it's pretty much the same. I'd say it's pretty much the same. So, I'm, um, you know, for what that's worth, I've, I've, as an attorney, I've seen jails and I have also been on an aircraft carrier and I got to tell you, and on the aircraft carrier, their water was totally lead contaminated. And they knew their water was basically lead contaminated. This is why people in the military get so many weird diseases and all sorts of screwed up shit that we then don't want to take care of them for. Kind of like firefighters.
1: Yeah. You know, you kind of just have to roll with the punches. Yeah, I
0: I don't. And you should see how they sleep. You should see. like, Yeah, they sleep like animals. Well, not due to them. It's due to what's there. Like we're talking like three bunk. Like it's just it's not good. It's not good.
1: We hope you enjoyed the show. This has been a very informative conversation, I must say, with Mr. Perkins and obviously some uh, little bantering going back and forth. The gun debate will rage on. um, And, of course, Mr. Santos will be, you know,
0: hung out to dry,
1: but he's going to he's going to bleed it for all it's worth. I find
0: him fascinating. Well,
1: you know, you did say that if you get your two years on the Hill, it's like you might as well make the most of it. Well, no one's going to forget George Santos for quite a while. He left his mark. And he's only been there for a few months. I'm I actually guess, wait a second, a few months. Am I, am I reading around? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's brand new. He's brand spanking new, and he's already left an indelible imprint.
0: Well, for, for the hoops. whole thing with him is just so bizarre. It's so bizarre. I just it yeah. I don't understand how somebody was so not vetted to that level. You know, it's it's one thing when yeah, skeletons come out, I get you know, people have stuff or whatever. Um, I, I, I know I understand that, but this guy, it's like his, his name wasn't even vet. It's almost like nobody even bothered to look him up. (laughs) It's just weird to me.
1: Well, it also says a lot about the whole electoral process and how difficult it is, uh, to really get people engaged. But the truth is it takes money, resources, effort, and all those things. And, you know, the overall voter is not, they should make a statue of him. Yeah. It's not necessarily you know, it's not a question of them being well-informed. It's just a question if they're informed at all.
0: Oh, and by the way, I I have no, like, I am, you know, I'm not going to say I'm confident, but I'm pretty certain, you know, that he probably belongs in prison for a whole myriad of things. Sure, but so many others. And and, and, and if he ends up there, you know, so be it. But I, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is fascinating.
1: We appreciate you guys. Like, share, and subscribe. Hope you enjoyed. We'll see you Wednesday.